Welcome to the Evolving Advisor Podcast, dedicated to equipping independent financial advisors with the tips, insights, and knowledge to help you achieve success in business and life. Host Jeff Concepcion shares 30 years of experience as an advisor, entrepreneur, and CEO. Join Jeff and the industry's top thought leaders as they help you evolve from where you are today to where you want to be tomorrow. Now here's your host, Jeff Concepcion. Hi, this is Jeff Concepcion and welcome to the Evolving Advisor podcast. Uh, very, very excited today to have the head of our organization, the president and CEO of LPL, uh, Mr. Dan Arnold, joining us. Dan is, again, the president and CEO of LPL Financial, a leading retail investment advisory firm and the nation's largest independent broker-dealer. In his role, Dan's responsible for the strategy and direction of the firm, working with the board, and also leading their senior executive team. Dan has more than 20 years of industry experience and has served as a president of LPL since March of 2015 and been largely responsible for driving the development of the firm's long-term strategy and helping them to maintain their lead position as the independent broker-dealer that's essentially a target for everyone in the independent space that wants to replicate the success and staying power that LPL has had. Dan was previously the firm's CFO, responsible for formulating financial policy and leading the company's capital management efforts. He joined LPL in 2007 as a managing director of the institutional services business, He's joined LPL through the acquisition of UBEST, which is a firm he was formerly affiliated with in working with investment programs for banks and credit unions. Dan earned a BS in electrical engineering from Auburn and holds an MBA in finance from Georgia State. He's Series 7, 24, 27, and 63 licensed. And I will take it a step further to say that LPL has enjoyed some of his greatest financial success in its tenure under Dan's leadership. So with that, Dan, thank you so much for, for chatting with us today. Wow. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jeff. And that was generous, kind words. I am I'm humbled to be here with you. And thank you for the opportunity to, to have a dialogue. I think it's really cool what you're doing. So thanks for the opportunity. No, I, I appreciate it. I can tell you that I've gotten lots and lots of great communication from folks who've been paying attention to our podcast, but I've also learned as much as they have in speaking to some great leaders in the industry. So I'm really excited to hear a little bit about your your journey and your career, and maybe we could start off by talking a little bit about how you got into the industry and just maybe how your role has evolved to allow you to lead today kind of a giant in the independent space. Yeah, well, uh, thanks, and happy to share a, a couple of thoughts on that. I'll, I'll keep them brief because <laughs> I don't know how interesting it is, but you know, I started out in the telecom space, as you mentioned, an electrical engineering undergrad degree and wanted to go get my MBA, and so I, I went. I uh, used the, the engineering degree to, to join the telecom space, and I spent about seven years there and thought all the margin was being priced out of the business, and so I left it, and then along came the internet, so it shows you how smart I was, but I, I went and actually then transitioned over to financial services business and um, had the cool opportunity to take a, an entrepreneurial route through UVest, and um that was a cool concept where um, it was a very small company who had a great vision but was struggling to execute their plan and um, got to come in and, and grow that up and scale it out, which then positioned us nicely. The founder was an older gentleman who wanted to exit, and so we found a worthy strategic buyer in LPL that is what allowed me to, to come and work on behalf of LPL back at the end of 06, beginning of 07. And I have been so fortunate since arriving here, as much as the entrepreneurial is 
experience was an incredible development phase. You know, it really challenges you, as you well know, across almost every general management initiative you could think about. I think it's also been extraordinary that it allows me to really empathize and understand the so many small businesses that we serve and support with our advisors. But when I got to LPL, what that did was really challenge me to think about how we operate at scale and how do you become an effective leader, not just personally what you contribute, but how you inspire and support others to try to be extraordinary and work for the greater good. So that's been a a really cool development opportunity. At the same time, I had the good fortune of working, as you said, to run a business line. I then got to create our strategy organization, which is a um, incredible opportunity to learn and develop and, and grow from a strategic agility standpoint. Got to serve as the CFO, then come back over to what I, I probably am most passionate about, which is servicing and supporting our clients and then the president role. And then I had the good fortune of moving into the CEO role. So that's been kind of the career journey. And it's been one that was born out of a working for a very large corporation, MCI, Bell South, and got some good experience uh, around a large organization and then got to work through an entrepreneurial effort and ultimately, you know, evolved with LPL. So it's been a, a great and wonderful opportunity. So, you know, I've, I've had enough experience, although not a lot. I probably had an eight or nine year stint in kind of an executive leadership role. I sat on the executive committee of a large public company and, and wealth management, enough so to know that large corporations are really complex animals. And for someone to kind of survive and evolve and continue to succeed, that's not an easy thing to happen. I'm wondering if there were any pivotal moments, any projects that you worked on or sort of any epiphanies or just positive things that happened that led for you to kind of take that next step in responsibility and leadership. Any uh, story or two that sort of stands out in your mind of a pivotal moment? Yeah, maybe a couple. I think when I first got here, LPL acquired UVest, which we had a business that was uh, focused on financial institutions. And we did things a little differently than the traditional independent model. And so learning how to align and collaborate with the broader organization in helping teach, coach, and, and align an organization that you were new to, that what you did might have felt a little awkward or a little foreign. I think was a really great challenge to think about how you influence and how you enroll, you align, and you communicate in a larger organization. So just that sort of uphill climb early on inside LPL uh, was a great challenge and and a good developmental moment. I think my time inside the CFO role, though that's not my natural sweet spot, I like to think I'm analytical in nature, but I would much rather use that analytical capabilities and how we grow and how we think about serving our clients. But having that experience, although I kid and, and call it the tour of duty, it was a great way to, to really learn and think about the dynamics of the income statement, how you think about uh, your capital allocation and driving real shareholder value. And ultimately, learning how to engage and work with the street, right? When you become a public CEO, you've got to understand that stakeholder group and how to work with them. So that was a that was a great sort of way to round out probably some of my more natural skills in working with clients and or a growth-oriented leader. So those are a couple of things that come to mind. I think one is the CEO 
that may be more important than any was just this learning of how important culture is, Jeff, in a in a company. I kind of always thought, oh, strategy would power you through, and culture just sort of came along with strategy. But I have I've had a cool experience over the last couple of years of really having the opportunity to transform a culture and to see what an impact that makes and what a difference that makes has been a, a, another great learning that I think is is really critical for all leaders to think about as, as they move forward is that not only do you have to have a good strategy, you have to be good at executing it, but the making sure your culture is aligned with it is is really important. Yeah, you talked about the street, and it just reminds me back in the role that I was in on the executive committee of our old firm. When you think about a business, you want to think about you know, three years and five years and 10 years, but the street doesn't permit it. You kind of live in 90-day increments, right? And you have this sort of burden of telling the story and being kind of held accountable in these tiny little bites that over time are inconsequential, but relative to the value of the stock, they really matter. And it's, it's got to be an interesting balancing act, thinking about where you vision the firm over time and where you want it and and need it to be? And then how do you sort of balance that with this sort of 90-day accountability? It's a, it's a complex world to live in both of those spaces and try to wear those two hats well, I would suspect. Yeah, it, it, no doubt. I actually think it, it's an interesting challenge that just simply should make you better as an organization and better as leaders, right? It's a, it's a big complex to how you communicate your progress and the results in any one quarter. But you've got to maintain your focus on where you're headed long term and ultimately what's that real value proposition you're going to deliver to the marketplace. Is it differentiated? Do you have a right to win? Can you continue to innovate to make sure it's relevant? And then how you tell that story each quarter around the progress that you're making on on the strategic front along with then how you monetize it and produce results is is more how we orient to it. So think about long-term strategy being the driver and then what you tell around it is is your journey there. And and that's how we think about it and orient to it. I, I, I think it makes us a better company because of it, because of that transparency on a quarterly basis. You have to be accountable for really understanding your progress, measuring your progress, and then what you learn from it, how you apply it towards your bigger strategic aspirations. So it's, it's been a really, it's been a really cool learning to how to be a public company. I think it's made us a, a better company at the end of the day. Yeah. And I, and I think you've obviously balanced it extraordinarily well. And when you talk about balancing, I know in the interactions that you and I've had, you speak as much about your family as you do about your business objectives. And you seem to have done a good job of balancing in that regard as well. And I just love to kind of hear your thoughts about the fact that the business it creates a great demand, but somehow I think, you know, you've seemed to have kept your priorities well intact about the importance of having the family kind of moving forward in a positive way and healthy and your relationships at the same time as driving a, a major corporation. Talk a little bit about what that type of balance means to you. Yeah, it's such a great question, Jeff. And heck, you, you know it as well as I do. I think it's a it's a work in progress. And I would love to tell you I get it right every single day. And if I had my wife on here with you, she could give you lots of data points where I, I probably don't do it as well. She's a she's a saint. That said, you know, I think about it this way. I, I sort of try to quantify it and allocate my time around you know, things that I can measure so that I can challenge myself as to whether I'm getting that balance right. And it's in me, but I work 80 hours a week because I choose to. It's just me. I'm passionate about what we do. I'm all about 
trying to support and have LPL be the, the best company it can be. And um, so I allocate a lot of time to work. You figure you've got 42 hours or six hours a night to sleep. There's about two thirds of your week right there wrapped up in those two things. And so the other two things I do is I try to work out and stay healthy. And then I try to focus and spend time with my, my family. And so if I can get a good 35 hours a week with the family, um, whether that just be a simple dinner, um, you know, we go out to lunch on the weekends or we go do something together. It's, um, it's, if I, if I find that I got time, I, I'm then more purposeful about spending it and, and trying to do it with, with great quality. I don't always hit that, but that's kind of the framework I use to try to make sure that I'm finding that good quality time with them. I'm blessed with three girls and they're, they're incredibly awesome. And so I have lots of opportunity to, to do fun stuff with them. Yeah. And I, I really do believe, you know, it's a matter of prioritization, right? So if it matters, you can make the time. And they always say, if you have something you want to get done, give it to a busy person. Some, somehow there's this elasticity where they can continue to create time and take on projects. So I've worked like an animal my whole career because I love to work, but I never felt it was at the expense of family. You know, I was able to do both. Now, there are many times where I didn't sleep very much, but, you know, but I, it was never at the expense of being involved with my kids or their teams or their events. And then the other thing I always said is I work the way that I do because I can work the way that I do. And if there was a point in time that I couldn't, in other words, a family obligation, very quickly I would put the work at bay and then focus on what needed to be focused on, whether it be an illness or, or otherwise, because the work will always be there. And sometimes these family needs, when they crop up, it's a chance to sort of be ever present and visible and available. And my son had an accident when he was in college and I slept in the same bed with him. He, you know, he couldn't go to the shower. He couldn't really do anything on his own. He had his leg was, had this metal halo around it and he needed a needle in his you know, belly at night and in and, and the morning for blood clots and every day. And we were working on homework together, you know, and he said to me several months afterwards, he said, I don't know how you ran the company. It seemed like you were with me 24 hours a day. And I said to him, I do what I do at work because I can, but if there was a reason not to, I think people just, you reorient your focus to, you know, what priorities need to be. And I, th- I give you credit for that constant battle of being mindful enough to try and balance the family along with the great work success. So it's not easy, but I give you credit. Well, you, you said it really well, and it's a great story. I, I, I like to think we, we only have so many moments, and we've got to be present for them, good, bad, or neutral, and make sure you make the most of them. And we're extraordinary when we're there with them, right? Um, just like you expect yourself at work. So I, I, I think that um, it's not easy. I get to learn and try to improve every day on it, but um, it's certainly a, a, a worthy challenge. So kind of switching gears to talk about the industry a little bit and maybe the future of the industry, you've got a pretty neat lens. I'm wondering, you know, COVID or sort of separate and apart from it, I mean, what trends do you see developing in the industry maybe? What do you see advisors looking for, clients, any trends that you see sort of developing as we move forward? Yeah, if we took the, you know, industry as a whole, I think before you overlay COVID onto it, maybe we separate those two things. I think, um, you know, as we look at it, uh, the opportunity set we have in this space and in this industry is big and it continues to grow. I mean, this advice space is as much as 22 trillion today, over the next 10 years expected to grow to 35 trillion. And on, I think that's driven by the demand for advice world's complex, uh, the world's noisy, and 
people want to allocate less time to figuring out all of this and they want um, you know, a trusted professional to support them and help them. So it bodes well for that demand and that need for advice and then seeking out uh, a, a financial professional for that support and help. And if you look across all demographics, Jeff, sometimes we think it's just the older generations, but if you look across all generations, they all have a similar propensity to, and willingness to pay for that advice, which tells you, I've got something important to decide around my life goals and dreams, and I'm going to seek out advice to support me with that. So I think we have a big opportunity. And quite frankly, I think COVID just reinforced that demand and need for advice and the special opportunity we have to help solve for really important problems, challenges, and opportunity in clients' lives. So we're, we, we think this growing trend around demand for advice continues and we have a big opportunity set. I think on the on the flip side of that, there are things that are changing in the industry that we can either orient to them as a problem or actually we think about them as an opportunity. Maybe it makes things a little tougher and a little challenging, but boy, you make the pivot and you create value or you adjust how you do something to, to, to add even more value going forward you get rewarded for it. So what are the drivers that, that sort of have us think about that concept? Well, it would be consumer behavior and needs, competitive challenges, right? I think they're leading to mm, this, this a more demanding sort of um, always on availability, your content. It's gotta be more personalized. It's gotta be emotionally relevant. So there's a, a little more demanding around the value of our advice and how available it is. I think the second trend we see is is this concept around um, you know we 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 we've got to think about our service model and this this concept about of evolving to a mix of digital and human engagements and that's changed yes but with automation with digital capabilities that actually could create great capacity or scalability in our businesses. And so I, I think though maybe different in how we've traditionally engaged with our clients, if we engaged 100% of the time in person and that goes to 50-50, how do we think about turning that into an interesting opportunity to enrich the service experience, but also our capacity? And then maybe a, a third one is just this concept around compression of fees. I think it's reasonable to believe that in a, in a well-seasoned business, you're going to have more and more competitive entrants that try to create a value proposition with perhaps a lower pricing alternative. And we've got to take on that compression of fees and think about that and in a way that helps us pivot so that we can either lower the cost of our business, add additional growth to either overcome that compression or fees or create so much value that we can um, maintain sort of pricing control and some stability in, in those fees. But I think those are some of the, the drivers we see, right? It's this consumer behavior around how they want to engage and, and consume advice, what they expect in terms of the quality of that advice. And then finally, um, how do we do it for less fees? Yeah, you, you hit a lot, a lot of great points there. So, Mark Tabergen, who I think is just a neat guy and kind of a student of the industry, has said that we haven't had a lot of fee compression yet, 
really on the margin. Uh, what you've probably had is time compression, right? So clients aren't necessarily saying, I'm going to pay less, but maybe they're expecting us to do more for the same fees that we charged. And then you have this whole concept of, you know, people wanting to get sort of bargain rate advice, but only till it's convenient to do so. And then you come and come up with something like COVID and they want handholding and they want guidance. It's okay that the plane is self-piloted, but if, if we're in the midst of a storm and now I want someone up there actually making decisions and sort of guiding it down. So advice doesn't really matter until it matters. It, my opinion on the whole, you know, kind of low cost solutions is that the best way to combat it is to not combat it. It's embrace it. So I don't want to be in a situation where I'm convincing the client of my value. You want to pay 35 beeps? Fine. No problem. Here's the sleeve that we have. It doesn't have the, the level of engagement or planning or any of those things. It might be very much of a digital experience, but I think, you know, rather than fighting it, acquiesce and make it available. If that's what you want, that's great. And here's other things that we offer at, at various levels. And the other thing that you said that I could not agree with more is being focused on efficiency. So how do you touch people in efficient ways? It could be through digital meetings. It could be by sending out a video where clients hear what I have to say and I'm communicating with them every week and sharing my thoughts on the market. It could be events. Obviously, they can't do it today, but events and group meetings where they're seeing me and or, and or the team that they're working with, and but not always this one-on-one engagement. And maybe the, there are more one-on-one engagements based on the stratification of clients, that whole ABC notion. And But I think you're right. There's lots of room for efficiency, lots of ways to touch more efficiently digitally and through communications and otherwise. So the the industry will, it'll evolve and it's it's gradually, you know, it's gradually treading in that direction. But I think you've hit on a lot of real good points there. Yeah, I think you, you summarized it well. And, and again, if I, if I had to put a capstone on any of it, I think the good news is this durability around the need for advice and to receive that from a trusted professional. And if we're good at solving those problems in a, in a really efficient way, in a personalized way, and can do it cost-effectively, there's, there's a tremendously big industry here where folks can, can, can um, I think, succeed beyond their, their aspirations. So you guys have, at LPL have really, in my mind, sort of blazed the path towards independence and, and sort of... Um, re-engineered, and I know there's a lot going on now just in the last year. Talk a little bit about what's on your radar at LPL and what you hear advisors clamoring for as they look for uh, new ways to affiliate, new ways to become independent. Talk about some of the solves that are on your mind uh, and how you guys are remaining one step ahead of the competition. Yeah, well, you know, I I think it gets back to really being clear um, what we're trying to solve for. And as, as I've challenged the team a great outcome for us is just to be really good at helping our advisors solve their problems or capitalize on their opportunities. And so that tends to keep our eye focus, you know, at, at that sort of center of the bullseye. So a couple of things then that manifest themselves with that as a, as a context. One of the ways that we've been imagining the future is around the independent model and in its traditional form what we realized, it's great and it has tremendous appeal, right? It's got better economics. It allows the advisor to have the autonomy to position their practice and brand it in their markets at a local level in the way they want to. They own their clients. And those are three really big appeals that still, uh, appealing attributes that still exist within the model. I think what we realized though is of the 300,000 plus advisors that are out there, the independent model 
clearly hasn't been the ultimate outcome for a significant number of them. And so as we imagine a, a modernized independent model, how do we think about broadening its appeal to all 300,000 potential advisors that sit out there or most of them? And so one of the areas that we recognize that we could create some opportunity is to create additional models. So we take our traditional independent models and then we began to imagine, well, what about the advisor who's been traditionally, let's say, at a wirehouse and was used to cer certain support functions that were built around them or done for them inside that wirehouse? Well, what if we could help them go independent and add those capabilities such that we create a, a sort of a new model for that type of advisor where without those services, they really weren't willing to make the move. And so that led to um, a, a new model that we've created that, that we rolled out um, earlier this year that we've begun to add new advisors with. We also asked the same question around, well, what about the advisor who really likes all those qualities of the independent model but um, wants employee services around them. They don't want to deal with the benefit side of the business or the human capital elements of the business or worry about real estate. Could we create an independent model that has employee services wrapped around it, if you will, um, to appeal to another significant segment of the marketplace? And then I think we realized that as the world goes more and more advisory, that we wanna have a really compelling RIA only solution that allows someone the flexibility to take on their own risk or outsource that risk, but have all the functionality capabilities in a frictionless way of just doing RIA business that's detached, if you will, from the old traditional FINRA and or brokerage services. So that's ways, Jeff, we're thinking about expanding the flexibility of the models so that it's appealing to more uh, uh, advisors out in the marketplace, and it, and it really creates more of a modernized version of the independent model. And I'll tell you, the ultimate driver of each one of those models is, is we want to make sure that we can drive the optimal profitability for that advisor, regardless of the model that they choose, which gives them the ultimate inflexibility. I get to choose the model that's right for me wherever I am in my career evolution or journey but I can do it in a way that's gonna be most profitable for my practice. And that's the key to the success of those different models from our view. So that's one source of innovation as we think about evolving the traditional independent model. Yeah, I, th I think it's, you know, there are so many ways and so many definitions that people apply to independence and advisors go independent with different reasons for different reasons. They also go independent with different skill sets, right? So, yeah. so early on, we just kind of had one model. And I don't think it was six, seven, eight months into having form stratos that I realized that the math got complicated for people. They knew at the wirehouse, they got 40 cents on the dollar. Here, I'm telling them we're going to give them X, 85 cents, but then you're going through all this math about real estate and benefits and everything else. So we kind of came up with this bundled version that served us really well that says, you know, you get X, 70%. And with that, we're going to cover your LPL affiliation charges and real estate and benefits and so on and so all these different pieces and parts. And it was just sort of wrapping things up in a box because they, you know, they knew that by bundling it, it just kind of looked and felt a little bit more like what they were leaving. So there are varying degrees of independence. And the more broadly you cast that net, the more means of choice you give people to go independent and still affiliate with you, which to me, I think is very thoughtful. And I can't imagine that won't lead to lead to good things. 
Well, and you've done an incredible job of, of I think, uh, leveraging a lot of those different options and alternatives, right? And, and bringing solutions, as you say, that are simplified to the marketplace, they're easily understood, very predictable in terms of one's outcomes, and, and you allow the advisor to do what they do best, which is engage with those clients and, and create value and solve their problems and challenges. So Yeah, so you've got a great broker-dealer, you've got this uh, great brand, you've got all these tremendous things going for you. What's inside the box really hasn't changed much. It's sort of the wrapping, right? So if a different type of a wrapper is more attractive to one person than another. It's again, this whole notion of repurposing all the great tools and technologies and resources available at LPL, that repackaging for people to find different ways to affiliate. Again, I, I really think that's going to bode well. And I think, I think it's a great call. So as we're talking about advisors and what they want, you've had a chance over the years to really experience some of the best advisors in the industry what do you see as sort of consistent traits among the most successful independent advisor? I'm sure independent advisors, I'm sure they come in all different shapes and sizes. Are there some commonalities among the best practitioners that you've seen over the years? Yeah. You know, I, again, I think, as you say, we've had a, a neat opportunity to work with a, a wide variety of different advisors. And so you build sort of a good fact base and some learnings from, from those experiences I think the the consistent thing that we find in small businesses and advisors are their capacity constraints, right? Or as Bert White likes to call it, there's a capacity crisis. And all that just means is, is you only have so much time in the day and you've got to be uh, really smart about picking your spots of where you allocate that time and that attention. And um, these folks are in you know, incredibly courageous business owners, and you're called on to do a lot as a as an entrepreneur. And so, I think those that solve that capacity constraint really well, Jeff. There's probably a high correlation between their success and, and folks that are able to do that. So, with that as a as a as a concept, I think we those that maybe have the highest degree of success are ones that might solve for that capacity constraint by Outsourcing investment management is a place where they're able to save a, a great deal of time and reallocate that time to places where they can create more value for their clients. Um, those that take a holistic planning orientation, we find as a, as a way in a context of, of approaching a client that says, I'm going to look at your holistic needs and challenges, and it gives me a greater opportunity to solve for more problems and challenges or opportunities you may have as a, as a, as a client. I can also then tie it to your life goals and dreams and take you on that journey. So it gives me a, a, a really interesting platform to establish a context to solve big problems and then do that over time. So we see that as a, a successful approach. That also is a repeatable, sustainable process that, that, again, is usually a way to help capacity constraint. And then those people that do free up more time to provide to spending with clients and or working on prospects are usually spending about 30% of their time on business development. Whether that's developing their network, spending time with a prospect or client, they're able to allocate important big chunks of time to growing their business. And finally, I think they've done a good job of streamlining and creating an efficient operations. And, and, and again, that tends to free up their time uh, where they can spend it on the things that matter most. 
but that's what I think the, the data set would tell us we find most successful combination of attributes of an advisor. Yeah, so it's very interesting. I've, I, I don't think I've heard it phrased the way that you did, although I think I've articulated sort of the intellectual equivalent of, so you talk about solving for capacity constraint, which I love. I have not heard it said, said that way. The way I talk about successful advisors is it's kind of that evolution from an advisor to a CEO, and it's really a similar path, right? It's recognizing what others can do better than you do, and whether it's the financial planning or the asset management, it's having a willingness to invest in the business. This isn't a paycheck. I'm running a company, so shouldn't I be carving out money and reinvesting in technology, in people, in intellectual you know, capital, and, and all these things? And I really like that notion of solving for capacity constraint is recognizing what do I do so uniquely and so well that drives success? And where should I be creating additional capacity for me to do those things by asking folks to do other things that are critically important, but that they might be able to do as well or better than I do it. So I think I've said it in a different way, but I really like that whole notion of solving for capacity constraint. It aligns philosophically with you know, the same concept that I try to talk to people about as it relates to growth and sort of being the best version of what you can be as an advisor or as a business owner. Yeah, well said. Heck, that solving for that need of how we help folks be CEOs is where, you know, is a big source of innovation. And one of the things we think is important to solve for in this modernized independent model, I think for many, many years, it was just help people go independent and then let them figure it out, right? Well, we think one of the places we can add the most value is how to help them be a successful CEO and run a successful business, which is where, you know, we had born some of our business solutions that we created where we'll help folks with uh, outsourcing that kind of CFO work or, you know, helping them with being able to outsource marketing efforts or managing their technology infrastructure. So we've tried to create affordable ways to give them the expertise that they need that they can leverage to just enhance how they run their business without having to spend their valuable time on it. Uh, it makes great sense. I think you've sort of answered the, the last question, but maybe if there's anything that you want to encapsulate. So if I'm an advisor at LPL or any other independent platform and I'm running a successful business, what should my focus be as I look towards the future and I think about how I can continue to serve my clients better, run a more successful business. I th- again, I think you've said some of it, but maybe just sort of encapsulating a final thought about how can I be more successful serving my clients and running my advisory practice as I look toward the future. Yeah. Oh, you, the C- use your CEO context as an approach and you've got to absolutely obsess over the, the engagement with your clients and the value that you provide them, right? And that requires us to be agile and nimble and continue to learn what their needs are and evolve how we serve and support that. We've got to be really thoughtful about how we run a successful business and all the administrative components of it that they've got the right expertise necessary to make the smartest, most informed business decisions they can that will lead to the successful operation of that business. And then we've, we've, we've got to make sure that, that we can support them and help them as they, they think about the different varieties of expanding that business, whether it's uh, uh, access to capital to grow through acquisition or whether it's how do we position them for the right to win such that their organic growth efforts are successful. Um, and that takes good discipline and allocation of time on business development activities. So. I think those are the four keys. I got to be disciplined on my business development activities, 
leveraging and access to capital to support my growth, being uber focused on on how I uh, operate and make business decisions, and then finally highly focused on on that client engagement and experience. Yeah, super insightful. So thank you so much for carving out a little time to share some thoughts and philosophies and best practices. Congrats on a tremendously successful career sort of from the outset, but even more specifically, thank you for being at the helm uh, of the organization that's really helped us build the shop that we have. And also thank you for sparing us from your musical or lack thereof talents and sharing a much more talented Arnold in your place. So... Absolutely. I, um, uh, that was a, a place I had to be innovative quickly because I'm not very good at it. But uh, I, I think she may have joined us. Mary Selwyn, are you there? Hi, I'm here. Hello. Awesome. So, Jeff, this is Mary Selwyn Arnold, and she is my oldest daughter. I said I had three. She's 20. She is a, uh, a rising junior at Auburn University, which Dad was quite proud of that choice. And yeah. um she is quite musically inclined, and I thought it would be best to have her sing a little song for us. I think that's awesome. I think it's awesome. So I'm going to be singing Six Feet Apart by Luke Combs because I thought it was sort of fitting to the times that we're in right now, and it was a good way to cheer people up. Fantastic. The news has all been bad. The whole world seems to die. Ain't had much else going on, so I sat down and wrote this song. Miss my mom, I miss my dad, I miss the road, I miss my band. Giving hugs, shaking hands. It's a mystery, I suppose, just how long this thing goes. There'll be crowds and there'll be shows. There will be light after dark. Someday when we aren't six feet apart. Wow, that was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, honey. That was terrific. I, I think we got. I think we lucked out having you. That's not Good the job, first, sweetie. That's not the first time she's saying that was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. He may you. have you back instead of me. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, right. does she have more time? I might want to interview her instead. <laughs> it might be more interesting, Jeff. <laughs> I know, I know. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Evolving Advisor. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. And if you would like to talk about succession planning or practice acquisitions, please drop us a line. We would love to help you in any way we can.